had he had been a constant presence amongst the nominations since 2006. And that's all the news from RTHK. Welcome to the Week on 3 with me, Noreen Mir. It's so lovely to be with you this Saturday morning, and what a windy and rainy week it's been. Let's hope for some nice weather for the weekend so we can enjoy the last bit of the summer holiday. Not that I have a summer holiday, but we have the weekend, and you have me bringing you the finest selection of Radio 3 interviews of the week. It's not so easy to choose because there are just so many interesting interviews throughout the week. This week, I have birdwatching, sustainable hand sanitizers, Olivia Newton-John. But I'd like to start this week's program with something a bit more serious, as the health authorities reminded the public that COVID-infected children could develop croup, a viral infection that leads to the swelling of the voice box and windpipe. On Wednesday's Back Chat, hosts Jim Gould and Danny Gittings spoke to Dr. Mike Kwan, an honorary clinical associate professor at the University of Hong Kong's Department of Pediatrics and Adolescent Medicine, who explained what exactly is croup. This condition refers to an infection and inflammation of the upper airway of small children, usually from six months to three years of age. And this uh, infection uh, actually causes obstruction to breathing, and cause some characteristic symptoms, uh, which we call rigid, uh, which uh, lead to these groups. And in this Omicron outbreak, in a brief way, the uh, Hong Kong University, uh, led by Professor Yilong Lao, we published our findings that the Omicron uh, COVID is the major major cause of the groups among children uh, during the past uh, fifth wave. And also, we found increased incidence of the cases in the recent uh, recent weeks. And uh, the groups, in the medical terms, actually we call this a laryngotracheal bronchitis. Mm-hmm. This means a swelling uh, around the voice box, the larynx, the windpipe, the trachea, and also the bronchial tubes, the bronchi, which produce the characteristic uh, barking cough and also dry though. The barking cough means that when the child coughs, it forces the air through the, the narrow passageway, and the swollen vocal cords produce, produce a noise similar to a seal barking. And likewise, when the, when the child takes a breath, often produce a high-pitched uh, whistling sound, which we, which we call a stridor. And uh, I actually got a, rec- a, a recording that you can, you can actually uh, play to the audience. Yes, we do have a sample of, of what it sounds like, and obviously parents uh, should watch out for this. Uh, so I think we're just going to listen to um, the barking cough that you refer to, which is uh, caused by this condition croup. Now, what should a parent do if they hear that sound? Uh, yeah, the, uh, the parents can listen to the very high pitch, the sound, which we call the stridor, and also the barking cough. And when the parents notice uh, the child got a fever, uh, running nose, and also this barking cough and stridor, and also uh, increased work in breathing, and also distress in breathing, and also because uh, the information involved the larynx, the child may cause a hoarse voice, and please uh, bring 
the child to doctor uh, immediately because it is very acute condition and the obstruction is causing a respiratory distress. And this edema may, may block the airway and the child may have difficulty in breathing and this needs very immediate treatment. But a lot of doctors won't treat COVID cases. You have to go to the you have to go and, to any uh, public and, hospitals. And, and, and indeed, indeed, actually, some doctors in public hospitals also treat COVID cases. And but uh, but actually, can you, the parents can bring the child to public hospital. And when when the child in the A &E, when doctor in A &E department uh, see these cases, they will uh, bring to the pediatrician immediately because it is a very immediate uh, treatment require immediate attention. Uh, so, how, sorry, uh, uh, how common is this condition? This condition uh, 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 actually not not very common because uh, we encounter a few cases every month. But in the recent Omicron uh, infection, especially during the fifth wave, we encounter lots of these cases. And uh, uh, indeed, recently in the recent few weeks, we we encounter really uh, one to two uh, cases every day. So this is quite frequent and quite common. And so uh, uh, parents, please take attention when your small child got these uh, symptoms please bring to a doctor uh, immediately. And also, most importantly, we, we, we need to prevent our children being infected by the COVID virus. So please bring your child for uh, COVID vaccination uh, quickly when, when your child uh, are eligible for vaccination. Well, most of these cases are actually <coughs> not very serious, or at least uh, the children will recover without, any, um, without, without much problem from uh, these cases, right? They, they, they can recover after treatment, but uh, this, this, this needs quick, quick, uh, early and immediate uh, treatment. But if the treatment uh, actually uh, at a later stage, then it may be quite difficult and the child may go into a very severe stage. And this every obstruction will cause hypoxia and also damage uh, to the brain. So this is very important. I, I stress again that uh, early and uh, immediate attention uh, is very important. Um, but it, you, parents are still generally reluctant to get their young children vaccinated. We've seen the, the vaccination rate is take up rate is still pretty pretty low among young children since it was made available last week. Yeah, it is it's understandable. So this is why our pediatricians need to uh, uh, give more education to the parents so they understand. Uh, first of all, the vaccines uh, they are immunogenic. Uh, effective and also most importantly they are safe they're safe to children so this is why it is important that they understand the vaccine uh, useful to the to protect their children against the uh, severe uh, severe consequences of the COVID infection and also most of most importantly hospitalization and also uh, death and so it is important that they, they bring the child uh, for vaccinations why do you think it is that uh, so many parents are reluctant to get their children vaccinated? Because young children are, uh, are given inoculations for other, other uh, diseases, aren't they? And, and, and I mean, the, the, um, the, the jab available for children from six months to three is their Sinovac, which is a, a long-established, uh, tried-and-trusted uh, technology. Uh, in my experience, uh, parents they worry about vaccination mainly about the side effect. But mm -hmm. I can I can tell parents that indeed, when after the, their child uh, were born, actually they received so many vaccinations against uh, tense disease uh, already. For example, the polio, the tetanus, uh, the uh, other diseases. So their their children actually received many many vaccines after 
after after birth. So yeah. this, so this is why uh, the vaccination they are important. And regarding the Salovax, uh, many many uh, countries are actually using them, and the they are un- undergoing many many trials already, and showing that they are immunogenic, they are effective, and so they also they are safe. So they they given this information, children the parents should uh, have confidence that. The vaccine uh, actually are, are helpful to the to the child, and they can uh, so they should bring the children uh, for vaccinations. But as we all know, the vaccination won't stop you catching COVID. It's, it's more about reducing the effects of having COVID. Yes, this is true, but uh, it, 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 it won't prevent you from getting infection. But most importantly, to prevent the adverse uh, consequences. Just likewise, I mentioned about the groups, and secondly, the those. Uh, uh, severe consequences like the acute necrotizing and capsulitis uh, we mentioned before that really causing death to the children and also the other condition we mentioned before the, what we call the MISC the multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children and also uh, we, what, what, what we are now seeing more is the long COVID in the children after they recover from the infection for example around uh, two to three months later, they got problems with their memory, cognitions, those problems. So this is why it is important that we prevent the infection in the first place. And that was Dr. Mike Kwan, an honorary clinical associate professor at the University of Hong Kong's Department of Pediatrics and Adolescent Medicine, who talked about croup and COVID on Tuesday's Back Chat. Right, now let's move on to another COVID-related phenomenon, and that is hand sanitizers. It seems that this is an item that is a staple in our handbags or in our bags, but the containers are incredibly damaging to our planet since it's made of plastic most of the time. On Monday's Trash Talk, Marcy Trent Long talks to the general manager of Safe and Sound, Sam Beer, about an innovative project that aims to make hand sanitizers more sustainable. Here's an excerpt of Sam explaining how this is achieved. Now, the final stage to it is the circular bit, and that's really what we're you know, talking about today, other than the physical liquid. The circular side of it is to remove the plastic, because the plastic is the huge problem, and that's what you know, we're so concerned about. This part of it has been you know, a real mission. Um, we've had to have a lot of advice uh, and to try to create a system to be able to close that loop. And essentially, it's not a new system in that things like you know, gas and beer, for example, would be delivered in a stainless steel container to a ah. to a client and then and then exchanged when empty. That's what we're doing. So essentially we've found we have a vessel, five litre vessels, which are, you know, nicely branded um in, in our logos. And then really what we do is we optimize, we, we work with the client to work out how much they physically need, and then we work a delivery plan for them. And we deliver the full kegs, if you like, or full containers and <laughs> hand sanitizer kegs. Empties. That does take that takes keg to a new uh, new level. So great, good. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it's a simple model, but it means that you know we can uh, we can limit the deliveries as well, and it means that you know from a carbon emissions perspective, from the delivery you know delivery side of things, which is is where there is so much um, expenditure on that facet, then it really means that we can control that. And then what we do, the physical liquid, if you like, to get it into the containers, then we, we take a single large delivery to the, to the factory where they clean and then refill those containers and, and then bring them back to us into our warehouse in Hong Kong. So all of those steps have been taken to reduce the plastic, reduce the kind of transport side of things and carbon emission. 
and then make sure that we're delivering to our clients what they need, not necessarily, you know, having a crazy store, um, a storage of, of the product. So that's how we've created the model. It's the product itself, the physical liquid and how the, the care that we've taken to make sure that it's safe for the users, that the, um, the physical delivery of that product through a very smart dispenser system. And then the final part is that is closing the loop, creating the way that we deliver it to our clients to make sure that, that we're minimizing and stopping that plastic that we're all seeing. Yeah. Boy, it sounds like you guys have been very, very thoughtful in the process. How, how long has it taken you guys to develop all this? Oh, it's actually taken a lot longer than we'd imagine. <laughs> we, 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 uh, I think, yeah, you underestimate these things, but in the reality, you know, we've done it also during COVID, which has had its own challenges um, from, from a supply chain perspective. But, um, you know, we've been resolute with the idea that, you know, we won't compromise on this. You know, there are certain things we, you know, we're willing to accept. But from a sustainability perspective, we're really trying our best. Now, are we absolutely perfect? I'm, I'm sure, you know, some can pick some holes, but we've worked as hard as we can to make sure that this is uh, minimizing the impact as, as, as possible. And uh, it did take a, a lot longer. I think we're now a year and a half, nearly, uh, maybe nearly two years into into the program. And we're really out there and, and, and launching this now. We have a already secured some fantastic clients across Hong Kong, working with some brilliant partners and um, and they're delighted with the product and how we're working with them. So we're so excited and now we're at this point where really it's it's a getting to the sales process really now and, and starting to get out there and talk to people and, and get the message out. Yeah, that's great. Boy, it did take you a long time and then and it sounds like it was a bit of a passion project for you guys as well. Yeah, I'd, I'd say so. I think, you know, the, the key people involved, Rob Wall from Jeb Group and Blake Ireland from, from Life Solutions, um, my, myself as, as a director as well and, and, and kind of running the day-to-day. -day. We were a relatively small team, um, but it was a, a mission that we all went on to make sure that we, you know, made some difference here. It's a, it was a huge problem for us, something that was staring us all in the face. We've got we've got good background in, in delivering projects and being able to deliver to, to people. Um, Blake from Life Solutions has fantastic service business, which is, is delivering all across Hong Kong and, and doing an amazing job there. So putting us all together um, into a team has, has meant that we've you know, had real strength behind us to be able to deliver this. So really excited to, to, to see it, it launch formally and, and really push it into the market. And that was Sam Beer on Monday's Trash Talk, talking to Marcy Trent Long about making sustainable hand sanitizers. You can listen to Trash Talk live every Monday afternoon on The 123 Show at 2.30. And now let's move on to the next bit of my selection, and that is birds. With 550 different species, Hong Kong serves as a geographical hub for migratory birds, whose travels span from the Russian tundra to the Australian outback. Our intern, Carl Jair, sat down with the Hong Kong Bird Watching Society Bird Ringing Coordinator, Anna Louise Moulin, to learn more about our local avian wildlife. She starts by telling us how she ended up in Hong Kong. I love Sweden a lot, but I really feel like it's, it's such a wonderful part of the world, Hong Kong. And uh, it has such an uh, amazing bird life, and I really wanted to come back. So I actually was here in 2016. I studied at the Hong Kong University of Science and Technology. I was an exchange student there for a year, and I knew that then that I wanted to come back. Uh, so I, I reached out to the Hong Kong Birdwatching Society, which is where I now work, um, and asked uh, if they needed any help in the work they do. And that's how I ended up back here. 
Wow. So, what makes bird watching in Hong Kong special? So, Hong Kong is a fantastic part of the world because it it lies between two biogeographical uh, areas, which is the Palearctic and the Oriental realms. Um, what I should mention is that both these realms they have quite different species, and, but there is, of course, this overlap with migration. And because Hong Kong is right in between them, we get both of these. Uh, Uh, we get all of these species. Not only that, it lies on the East Asian Australasian Flyway, which is the migratory path for birds. So birds that migrate, uh, the ones that got, come from the south, maybe Australia, and then they go north in the summer to breed, maybe in, in Northern Asia, and then vice versa in, in the winter. And Hong Kong has such an incredible range of habitats. It has uh, islands and mangroves and forests. And it's just a great place for the birds to stop and, and um, while they're on the migration. So we're sort of in the middle, and you have birds coming in from all these different regions. Yeah, basically. exactly, wow. exactly. What time of the year should people go um, bird watching? So, all all across the year is pretty good bird watching. You know, we have over 550 recorded species here, but of those, only 11% are resident birds, as in they stay here all year round. The rest are uh, migratory or winter visitors, summer visitors. But really, it's in the spring and autumn while those birds are migrating through Hong Kong. That's that's the real, really great time to to go bird watching in Hong Kong. Not only that, we do have a lot of winter visitors, so to go in winter, to go bird watching in Hong Kong is also. Pretty and nice. and where in Hong Kong should they go? Should they go out to like the new territories or the islands? It's pretty hard. To say because everywhere in Hong Kong is quite good. Um, for me personally, Maipo in the northwest um, is a fantastic location. I think a real favorite with a lot of birders. And it, again, it has a lot of different habitat types in one place. You have the mangroves, you have the mud flats, you have the reed beds, um, and you know, especially during the winter, we have the ducks, we have the endangered black black faced spoonbills. Um, and a lot of waders, and then you know you go and you are surrounded by the calls of the great cockles, and you have the buntings in the bushes. It's just a magical place. And do you have any advice for first-time bird watchers? I think that the main thing I would say is reach out, and you know you can come to our to our website, the, the Hong Kong Bird Watching Society. We have a whole host of information there in the society itself. We have really experienced birders, you know, who spend every day birding and. And then we also have people that just like to, you know, go out on the weekends, maybe make a day of it with the family. All you really need is binoculars and a book, and then you just, yeah, get out there. And the other thing you could do is we have a mobile app, uh, the Common Birds of Hong Kong. It has uh, it has descriptions and pictures of over 200 common bird species here. So that too. And what are the threats to Hong Kong's bird populations? Because it seems like quite um, an interesting location, Hong Kong, with how um, urban it is, yeah. right? So I feel like there might be a lot of unforeseen threats to yes the habitat. So I think in general, I think we all know by now that the the environment all across the world is having a pretty hard time. Here in Hong Kong, yes, it, it, it's development uh, is is causing problems with habitat loss. And you know, there's pollution in the seas, and there's a lot of agriculture going on, and there can be illegal persecution of the birds. So they've got quite a quite a lot of threats. Um, so 
yeah, I think that that would be the main sort of things we're looking at. Habitat loss, hunting, etc. And what are some ways of uh, preventing or helping to conserve these birds? I think that one of the biggest threats that we didn't mention mm. is probably miscommunication. Mm. And I think that a way that we can help deal with this is by realizing that to fight for our birds and to protect our birds, to protect our environment, it's it very commonly it's seen as a fight against development and against agriculture. And this is could not be further from the truth. And so I think that just being able to educate each other and yeah of course becoming a member of a society or just following us on on social media or you know other green groups and spreading awareness of what is what is reliable and accurate information as educate each other it's not about changing your whole world or doing anything radical just just care mm. you know and mm. share your voice i wanted to ask about bird ringing um, and since you're their expert, I suppose, um, I want to know, how does it work? Uh, especially, how do you get close enough to the birds to actually ring them? Okay, yeah. Um, well, I, uh, I could talk for hours about it, but I would just try to give a brief sum summary. Uh, so bird ringing, or it's called bird banding in, mm. in the US, mm. um, it is a global research initiative. You know, we work with people across the country, or across the world, sorry, doing the same uh, it's the same thing, and that is to set up nets um, in certain areas where we know there will be birds. The birds will come along, and these these nets are very fine. They're very special nets for the birds, so that they can't see them and so that they don't hurt them. So the birds the birds will not see the nets, and they will fly into them, and they will essentially drop into a pocket in the net. We will go and check these nets, and then we will take the birds out. And what we do is we put a very very small ring around their leg. Um, and this ring is completely harmless. Uh, we have different size rings depending on the size of the bird. The smallest one for the smallest birds weighs 0.04 grams. So uh -huh. it's, it, is, it has been designed to be practically unnoticeable by the bird. Um, but the, this ring will have a code on it. And this code is completely unique across the world. It's only this individual bird that will have that code. Mm -hmm. And what that means is that when we recapture it, it doesn't matter where it's recaptured, you know, if it's a migratory bird, that could be in Russia, that could be in Australia, we will be able to tell where this bird came from um, and when it was ringed. Uh, and also we are able to age the birds. We are able to tell whether they're male or female. We take some other biometrics and then we release them. It's a pretty fast process and it's practically harmless to the bird. Yeah. Um, and with this, we are able to gather a whole host of information. So we're able to tell where birds go, we can track their migration depending on the recaptures, we can tell what type of habitat they use, we can find out ecology things like when and where they breed. And this is really important for us to know where we need to protect. You know, what areas are we looking for, especially with migratory birds. If you want to protect a migratory species, we need to protect it in one country where it breeds and another country where it winters. Mm -hmm. So this information is really important. It also can tell us about population dynamics. For example, if we don't catch many young birds in one year, we can probably tell that it ha there hasn't been a good breeding season. And then we need to figure out why this might be, and bird ring can give us the answers to that. Again, the funding for protecting the environment, everything is stretched. And so we need to be able to make our work as efficient as possible and to protect the species that need it the most. 
And that was Anna Louise Moulin talking to Carl Chair on this week's Common Room about birds. And now, finally, let me leave you with some good old-fashioned music entertainment. Tuesday's afternoon drive with Steve James, who paid a wonderful tribute to the late Olivia Newton-John, who sadly passed away earlier this week after battling cancer for decades. She was an inspiration to many fighting the disease, and to many of us, her sweet voice will be missed. Thank you for the music, Olivia, and thank you, our listeners, for tuning in. I hope you have a wonderful weekend. Bye bye for now. Oh, the factories may be roaring with the boom a lack a zoom a lack a wee, but there isn't any roar when the clock strikes four. Everything stops for tea. Oh, they may be playing football. And the crowd is yelling, kill the referee. But no matter what the score, when the clock strikes four, everything stops for tea. And our tea break this afternoon. Got to acknowledge the passing of Olivia Newton-John、uh, this week.、Um, she was 73, and.、Uh, I've been asked to remind you. I wasn't. I wasn't going to do this, but、uh, just to mention that I worked with her twice, and she was brilliant. First of all, it was at the end of the nineties, and it was a stage show. She came over for, and、uh, I was、uh, MCing and doing some other stuff there. And、uh, I remember. <laughs> I think what I remember about the show the most. Well, two things. First. I think I made a remark about being on stage with Olivia Newton-John. I made some sort of sarcastic remark, like, "Look, I'm on stage with Owen Jay," and she gave me the cheekiest look. It, I, I remember her looking at me directly, going, "So, what, what did you just say?" So, anyway, that, that was fine.、Um, and then、um, a number of years later, 2006,、uh, I met her when she was promoting.、Um, Uh, well, it was a couple of things. She was promoting an album called Grace and Gratitude, but that wasn't the main thing. It was also、uh, for the because the album was to benefit various、uh, charities of cancer. So she was there to talk about what she'd been through, and it was like a meditative,、uh, meditative mood music sort of、uh, album for people recovering. So I got a chance to interview her, which I will dig through and try and find.、Uh, we talked about working with various writers over the years, and she particularly pointed out working with Jeff Lynn. Was brilliant, and if you listen through her music, aside from the hits over the years, there's a few surprises to be found if you explore her albums. And in this case, a B-side, a B-side from the movie Xanadu, and it was Olivia Newton-John paying a tribute to an old—I'm not going to put a year on it—an old black and white classic. This is、uh, Olivia Newton-John.